1: Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 249 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast.
1: So, this will be our fourth year in review episode for 1862, which we weren't sure about spending that many shows on it, but we thought, hey, we spent 160 episodes to actually cover 1862. So we're really doing pretty good to boil all of that down into four review shows, right? Right. Well, last time we made it through July and August and wrapped up the episode after talking about the Second Battle of Manassas and the subsequent smaller clash at Chantilly, where two Union generals, Isaac Stevens and Phil Carney, were killed. However, during the last show, we also pointed out that even while we were talking about events in Virginia, there were also some big goings-on out in Tennessee and Kentucky. Yep.
0: On August 28, 1862, Confederate General Braxton Bragg led his Army of Mississippi north from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Bragg will take his men up into Kentucky following after a smaller Confederate force led by Edmund Kirby Smith.
1: Kirby Smith's smaller command had already entered Kentucky, and on August 30th, even while the two-day Battle of Second Manassas was reaching its climax in northern Virginia, out in the Bluegrass State, Kirby Smith's Confederates soundly defeated a Union force at Richmond. After the surviving Federal troops withdraw toward Louisville, Smith continues on to Lexington and the state capital of Frankfort.
0: At the end of the last show, we said that after the debacle at Second Bull Run and over the vigorous objections of Secretary of War Stanton and Treasury Secretary Salmon Chase, Abraham Lincoln reluctantly gave George McClellan command of the Union forces in Virginia and around Washington, including John Pope's defeated army.
1: And, to his credit, in an amazingly short time, Little Mac will reorganize and revitalize the troops under his command. Although McClellan has proven to be astoundingly useless as a field general, Lincoln will tell his secretary, John Hay, that nevertheless, quote, he excels in making others ready to fight.
0: Meanwhile, following his victory at Second Manassas, Robert E. Lee has decided to maintain the strategic initiative, despite the fatigue of his army, by entering Maryland and perhaps even striking up into Pennsylvania. By taking the war out of Northern Virginia, Lee hopes to collect supplies and possibly recruits in Maryland. But being Robert E. Lee, he also wants to draw the Federals out of the Washington defenses and into a crucial battle.
1: With Confederate forces out west driving up into Kentucky, Lee took his Army of Northern Virginia across the Potomac River and into Maryland. By September 7th, most of Lee's troops had reached Frederick, Maryland. Two days later, Lee issued Special Orders Number 191, dividing his army into multiple columns and sending them off in several directions. This was a risky move, but Lee anticipated it would take the Federals a while to get their act together again after their defeat at 2nd Manassas, which meant he'd have the time he needed to accomplish his plan. In this assumption, however, Lee was wrong as wrong can be.
0: Because behind the Confederates came the reorganized Army of the Potomac, marching from Washington much sooner than Lee had anticipated. On September 13th, as the Federals closed in on Frederick, which the rebels had left on the 10th, a Union soldier found a copy of Lee's Special Orders Number no. 191 wrapped around three cigars. The orders were soon in McClellan's hands, and the next day the Army of the Potomac advanced against the Confederates guarding the gaps across South Mountain.
1: The heavily outnumbered Confederates barely managed to hang on to the passes, but the arrival of reinforcements from James Longstreet's command meant the rebels were able to hold on until nightfall. Meanwhile, that same day, Stonewall Jackson's command captured Harper's Ferry and its sizable federal garrison.
0: Caught off guard by the unexpected advance of the Federals from Washington, Lee ordered his scattered units to reconcentrate behind Antietam Creek near Sharpsburg, Maryland.
1: Lee chose to stand and fight at Sharpsburg, even though his army numbered perhaps only 40,000, barely half the size of McClellan's 75,000. 75,000-man force. The battle began at daybreak on September 17th, and before it had ended, 24,000 Federals and Confederates had been killed, wounded, or were missing. It remains the bloodiest single day in American military history. A Union soldier likened the ferocious combat to, quote, a great tumbling together of heaven and earth.
0: Lee held his ground for another day before retreating back across the Potomac into Virginia the night of September eighteenth, nineteenth. A rear guard engagement at Shepherdstown ended the Maryland campaign of eighteen sixty two.
1: Due to McClellan's inept handling of the fighting at Antietam, the battle was a tactical stalemate, but the Confederate retreat back into Virginia meant the Federals could claim a strategic victory. And for Abraham Lincoln, the victory at Antietam was the beginning of a new phase in the war. That's because it provided him with the military success he'd been waiting on to issue the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. On September 22nd, Lincoln announced the preliminary proclamation to the public as a necessary war measure. The final proclamation, issued on January 1st, 1863, stated, quote, "...all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state, the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States, shall be then, thenceforward, and forever free."
0: Even as the newspapers carried the news of Lincoln's announcement, the outcome of the Confederate invasion of Kentucky remained uncertain. The rebel offensive in the West involved four commands, two in Mississippi and two in the Bluegrass State. While the main thrust was directed toward Kentucky and involved Braxton Bragg and Kirby Smith, another offensive in Mississippi was to support that operation.
1: Yep, Uh, In Mississippi, the Confederate generals involved were Sterling Price and Earl Van Dorn. Price captured the town of Iuca before withdrawing, and then on October 3rd and 4th, the combined force of Van Dorn and Price, under Van Dorn's leadership, attacked the Union troops at the key rail junction of Corinth, commanded by William Rosecrans. In a series of fierce charges, the rebels pierced the Federal defenses, but couldn't exploit their penetration. The Yankees held on, and Van Dorn retreated.
0: Meanwhile, events in Kentucky were nearing a climax. After Kirby Smith's success at Richmond, Bragg arrived on the scene and captured the federal garrison at Munfordville on September 17th. In a ridiculous bit of play-acting on October 4th, the rebel generals installed a pro-Confederate governor in a ceremony at the state capital of Frankfort. but by then, however, Union General Don Carlos Buell was marching from Louisville to confront the invaders.
1: The campaign's decisive battle occurred on October 8th at Perryville. It was a clash neither side intended to happen there. Bragg gave battle without realizing he was heavily outnumbered, and when he discovered the size of the federal force he was facing, he realized he'd bitten off more than he could chew and retreated from the battlefield. In fact, he began a long withdrawal back down into Tennessee.
0: The consequences of Antietam and Perryville carried far beyond the battlefields themselves. The possibility of foreign intervention in the conflict between the Union and Confederacy had never seemed more likely than in the late summer and fall of 1862, but the failure of the rebel operations in the Bluegrass State, and especially in Maryland, undermined Southern hopes for foreign recognition.
1: equally important, Abraham Lincoln's announcement of his preliminary Emancipation Proclamation carried with it the promise of a future struggle with a meaning beyond that of just preserving the Union. Before long, wherever Federal armies went in the South, they would not only be striving for the restoration of the Union, but they would also be carrying the banner of freedom for the slave.
2: What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.
3: In all human history, there are few stories like that of ancient Egypt. On the banks of the Nile, these people created one of the most enduring and significant cultures. Their tale comes to life in the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore the tales of this amazing culture from the legendary days of creation and the gods, all the way to Cleopatra, and everything in between. The History of Egypt podcast is written and produced by a trained Egyptologist. We go much deeper than your average documentary or magazine article to uncover tales of life, great endeavours, and the amazing arc of a mighty kingdom. The History of Egypt podcast is available on all podcasting platforms, apps, and websites. Come, visit ancient Egypt and experience a legendary culture.
0: Meanwhile, on September 27th, in the Confederate States, the Second Conscription Act goes into effect, expanding the military draft to white males ages 18 to 45. The act also allows pacifist members of Dunkard, Mennonite, nazarene and quaker religious communities to avoid military service that conflicts with their beliefs by providing a substitute or paying a 500 hundred dollar exemption tax
1: also at the end of september in union-occupied new orleans the first regiment of the louisiana native guards comprising free blacks and ex-slaves becomes the first black unit to be officially mustered into united states military service The 2nd and 3rd Louisiana Native Guards will be mustered in during October and November. Organized under Major General Benjamin Butler's direction, these regiments include some 75 black officers, a step that will be reversed after Butler is succeeded by Nathaniel Banks in December. Declaring that, quote, the appointment of colored officers is detrimental to the service, end quote, Banks will methodically drive black officers in his jurisdiction out of the Army, using charges of incompetence and a steady campaign of bullying and humiliations.
0: During the Civil War, only 32 other black officers will be commissioned in the Union Army, 13 of them chaplains and at least 8 physicians, who will be required to meet far more stringent requirements than those generally demanded of white Army doctors.
1: From October 10th to the 12th, Jeb Stuart leads his Confederate cavalry on a raid into Pennsylvania, during which he and his men secure information, prisoners, and 1,200 horses. And so Stuart embarrasses the Federals by riding completely around McClellan's army for a second time. Humiliating and disgraceful are two words Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells uses in his diary to describe the incident.
0: On October 11th, the Confederate government expands draft exemptions for various occupations. Among those added are owners or overseers of 20 or more slaves. This provision creates considerable resentment among poor whites and their families and raises objections by some Confederate senators who call it legislation, quote, in favor of slave labor against white labor.
1: On October fourteenth, congressional elections in four northern states result in gains for the Democratic Party, which generally opposes emancipation and favors a negotiated settlement with the Confederacy. Well, that is the Peace Democrats more so than the War Democrats would rather see a negotiated settlement with the Confederacy, even at the cost of a sundered union. But at any rate. Other elections this fall will see Democratic gains in some state legislatures and two governor's races. Although these gains are far from sweeping, most Democrats are greatly encouraged and most Republicans greatly concerned that the election results indicate waning support for Republican war aims, including emancipation and the goal of reuniting the divided union.
0: On October 26, the Army of the Potomac finally begins to cross its namesake river in pursuit of Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. Abraham Lincoln has been pressing McClellan to pursue Lee's Confederates since the Battle of Antietam, and Little Mac has responded with a continuous string of complaints and excuses.
1: Now, crossing the Potomac takes six days, and the Army's slow progress does little to temper Lincoln's frustrations especially since McClellan's deliberate pace allows Lee to deploy troops between the Army of the Potomac and Richmond. But the President's concern with McClellan's generalship pales beside that of radical Republicans in Congress, who have been increasingly critical of the General's soft war policies and lack of aggressiveness. McClellan, meanwhile, has long maintained close ties with leaders of the Democratic Party including influential newspaper editors, keeping them informed of his own complaints and accusations against his civilian superiors in Washington. Finally, on November 5th, with the fall elections just concluded and the Army of the Potomac still making glacial progress in pursuit of Lee, Lincoln's patience with McClellan comes to an end. He sends Halleck an order, quote, that Major General McClellan be relieved from command of the Army of the Potomac and that Major General Burnside take command of that army. End quote. And on November 11th, after a final emotional farewell, McClellan leaves the Army for good.
0: Also in November, Abraham Lincoln is dealing with the aftermath of a Sioux uprising that occurred from mid-August through September in which several hundred white Minnesotans were killed. Restricted to a narrow strip of land in south-central Minnesota, the Indians had been deprived of promised government food and supplies by unscrupulous whites.
1: After the fighting stopped, a military tribunal sentenced 303 Sioux to die by hanging, and expected quick authorization for the executions from the commander-in-chief. But Lincoln will review the trial records, and determined that only 38 of the Sioux ought to be hanged. The day after Christmas, those Sioux will be executed.
0: On November 14th, General-in-Chief Halleck notifies Burnside that the president has approved Burnside's plan to cross the Rappahannock River at Fredericksburg, Virginia, midway between Washington and Richmond, in order to surprise Lee and turn the Confederate Army's flank. Lincoln's caveat is that the plan, quote, will succeed if you move rapidly, otherwise not.
1: Well, as we all know from our Fredericksburg story arc on the podcast— Burnside moved quickly enough, but the pontoons he needed to cross the river, well, they were a bit late in arriving, right? And of course, after that, Burnside then led the Army of the Potomac into one of the war's bloodiest and most tragic debacles. On December 13th, the Federals attacked the southern end and northern portions of the rebel lines outside Fredericksburg, and the Confederates inflicted more than 12,000 casualties on them, while losing less than half that number.
0: Meanwhile, out in the Trans-Mississippi Theater, in my home state of Arkansas, a Confederate bid to regain control of northwest Arkansas and southwest Missouri fails at Prairie Grove on December seventh, when rebels under Thomas Hindman are defeated in a battle with Federals led by James Blunt and Francis Herron.
1: And then in Mississippi, a federal effort against Vicksburg had begun at last. This movement came from the commander of the Department of Tennessee, Major General Ulysses S. Grant. Grant moved against Vicksburg on two fronts. Grant himself led a force south, marching toward the city along the line of the Mississippi Central Railroad. But when a Confederate cavalry raid, led by Earl Van Dorn, destroyed the Federal Supply Depot at Holly Springs on December 20th, Grant was forced to stop his march. Less than two weeks later, the second union operation against Vicksburg, directed by William Tecumseh Sherman, was defeated on December twenty ninth at Chickasaw Bluffs.
0: On December 31st, while well under tow off the coast of North Carolina near Cape Hatteras, The federal ironclad USS Monitor founders in a storm at about 1 in the morning and goes down. Four officers and 12 men are lost, but 47 crewmen are rescued by the USS Rhode Island. In 1973, the wreck of the Monitor will be located, and two years later, the site will be designated as the nation's first marine sanctuary.
1: And then, as you guys know from our recently concluded Stones River story arc, On the final day of the year, Braxton Bragg's Confederate Army of Tennessee attacked William Rosecrans' Union Army of the Cumberland outside Murfreesboro, Tennessee. The combat is ferocious, finally ending only on January 2nd.
0: The fearful casualties sustained by both sides mean that the Battle of Stones River will become the deadliest clash of the Civil War in proportion to the number of troops involved. When Bragg retreated, the Federals were left in possession of the field, and Rosecrans was able to provide Abraham Lincoln with a much needed military battlefield success as the calendar turned from 1862 to 1863.
1: On December 1st, Lincoln had sent Congress his State of the Union message, noting the status of foreign relations and the condition of government finances, but focusing on slavery and its abolition. He wrote, As our case is new, so must we think anew and act anew. Fellow citizens, we cannot escape history. In giving freedom to the slave, we assure freedom to the free. Honorable alike in what we give and what we preserve. We shall nobly save or meanly lose the last, best hope of earth. But whether the last, best hope of Earth would be saved remained uncertain as the war's second winter settled upon the land.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Maps of Fredericksburg. An Atlas of the Fredericksburg Campaign, Including All Cavalry Operations, September 18, 1862, to January twenty-second, 1863, by Bradley M. Gottfried.
1: Well, this atlas, which is the latest in this series of excellent books, came out right after we'd finished up the Fredericksburg story arc on the podcast. So we thought we'd sneak it in here, just so you guys know it's out there. But it follows the same format as the other atlases in this series with a page of narrative on one side and a map on the other and it has over 120 full color maps in it so it'll keep the map geek in you happy for a while as you go through it anyway that's the maps of fredericksburg by bradley bradley gottfried
0: don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website which is www.civilwarpodcast.org.
1: Thanks to everyone who sent in questions for episode number 250. In fact, at this point, our cup overfloweth with questions. So you can still send those in this next week, and you'll be entered into the drawing for the Time Life Echoes of Glory Civil War Atlas, but we can't guarantee we'll actually get to your question on the show. In fact, we have so many questions now, I'm not sure how we'll get to them all. But that's a good problem to have, right? Right. Okay. Well, then as we wrap up this show, we want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Bill, Wayne, Sarah, Patrick, John, and Thomas.
0: New members Sarah and John also gave donations to the podcast, so thank you for that. And then Brian M. gave us a very generous donation since the last show.
1: Yep, thanks, Brian, for that and for your nice note. In fact, Brian, Sarah, and John all had nice things to say about the podcast, which we appreciate.
0: Before we go, we want to remind you that the lovely music you hear at the beginning and end of every episode of the podcast is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we're eternally grateful to Spiritwood Music for giving us permission to use it.
1: Well, thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War. 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you join us again next time for episode number 250, but until then, take care.
0: Thanks, everyone. Bye.